the warning for today's episode is that it includes descriptions of violent crimes committed against children and involves the death of a number of children. Thank you for listening. I'm Haley. I'm Andy. And this is Dead Endings. Starting on September 17, 1911, in Tecumseh, Michigan, a 36-year-old woman named Frances Kehoe went into her kitchen to start prepping her lunch. She lived with her much older husband, Philip Kehoe, and their nine-year-old daughter, Irene. Frances was Philip's third wife. His first wife, Mary, died after giving birth to their second child, and his second wife, who was also named Mary, had died from illness after the couple had had eight children on top of the original first two. Sheesh. So he had two children with Mary the first. She died eight children with Mary the second, who died from disease. It wasn't long after the second Mary died that he married the young widow Frances, and together they had Irene. And Frances also had some children from her first marriage before she was widowed. So they just had like a A brood of children. Just wow. There's at least 11 kids just from him. I think he had a breeding kink. (laughs) Or it was 1911 and like... They just had a lot of kids. Contraception wasn't real. That's like a thing. That's fair. That's a good point. (laughs) That's a good point. (laughs) And they were were farmers and usually farmers needed a lot of kids to like... (laughs) They need farming hands. Yeah. (laughs) Also living with the couple was Philip's oldest son, Andrew Philip Kehoe, who was 39 years old. So he was a few years older than his stepmom. Frances went to light the pilot light on the large stove in the kitchen, and as she touched the match to the stove, there was an explosion, and Frances was engulfed in fire. The other members of the house came running to the sound of her screams, and Andrew grabbed a pitcher of water and threw it over her. This was a gas stove fire. Water's not gonna help. And the water spread the flames and made it worse. They were eventually able to put out the fire, but Frances was in a state. She was still alive, but the house was full of the smell of burned flesh, and her skin had been charred black, and her muscles had all been pretty much, like, burned away. She was barely alive. I hope that she was in, like, the state of shock where you don't feel anything at that point. She was not. Oh, no! Um, So... The Kehoe's neighbor, Hetty, heard a gentle knock at her door, and she answered to find Andrew and his younger sister standing there. Andrew politely asked if Hetty could use the phone to call the town doctor, and she asked if someone was sick, and Andrew told her that Frances had been burned. Like, sir, she did not touch a hot pan and got burned? Oh, can you please call the doctor because she got burned? She was fully on fire. Yeah, like where is your sense of emergency yeah maybe have a little more urgency in this what the frick so and then andrew's like an afterthought was like oh can you also call the uh the priest yeah last rites yep there was nothing the doctor could do for francis the priest gave last rites and francis succumbed to her injuries the same day after just being in intense pain, moaning, like, it was it was horrible. And then I guess they had a pet dog who was outside howling 
as like she was moaning and dying. It was dark. Philip and Irene were devastated at the loss of their wife and mother. Yeah. The death of Francis, though, didn't have much of an impact on Andrew. Hmm. He and Francis had never really gotten along. I think that he saw her as kind of like this annoying kid because she was younger than him and he was a teenager when she had gotten together with her dad, so she was also like a teenager. Yeah. And it was, she just moved right in after his mom died and... I don't, I don't super blame him for not getting along with her, but you could at least be bummed out by her horrible death. Or, you know, just show a tiny bit of remorse. Shoot. He had originally moved out of the family home not long after Francis married his father to kind of get away from that new living situation. Yeah. His own mother, Mary II, had started to get sick when Andrew was only 10, and he watched as she withered away slowly over the course of eight years. Doctors said that she had a disease of the nervous system... And she was paralyzed by the time of her death. So he had to watch his mom just fade. That's rough. Andrew himself had been a quiet kid who liked alone time and learning about electricity. This was an interest that really drew him in for some reason. And after the death of his mom and his departure from the home after Francis came into the picture, Andrew spent a little time studying electrical engineering at Michigan State College, which is now Michigan State University. Nice before he headed to St. Louis, Missouri instead and studied there. According to relatives, Andrew suffered a head injury during his time in Missouri that left him in a coma for two weeks. Details around that aren't clear. They're just like, yeah, he had a head injury and he was in a coma for two weeks. Can you imagine being in a coma for that, like, during that time, too? They're just like, I hope he wakes up. They were just gonna (laughs) let him lay in bed for a while. Yeah. I didn't even think about that, like, during the time. I'm like, yeah, he was in a coma. There was a machine going beep, beep, beep. Like, no, was there? there? No, there wasn't. No, there he wasn't. Was there just... wouldn't have been, you know. <laughs> he was just at home. He's not dead, but he's not there. <laughs> yep. <laughs> After he woke up from the coma, he decided he was going to head to Iowa and work as a lineman for a while. That's such a da- dangerous job. Like, after he yeah. wakes up from a coma, he's like, I'm going to do something that's going to put me in more mortal danger. Well, he liked electricity. I was well rested. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> By 1905, at the age of 33, he was back in Tecumseh living with his father, Francis, and his three-year-old half-sister, which was Irene. Philip owned a farm and Andrew went to work for his father. After Francis died, Philip was not in a state physically, mentally, or emotionally to take care of the farm. Like, yeah. At this point, he was in his 60s and he did not plan to outlive his much younger wife. That's fair. He's already seen two wives die. He, I think, part of marrying younger was like, you can help take care of me, you can help take care of the children, and I can just get old and die. Yeah. So he was not ready for this tragedy. added emotional tragedy. Yeah. Damn. <laughs> Andrew took over the farm, and seven months after burying his stepmother, he married Ellen Price, who he'd met when he was attending Michigan State College years earlier. Andrew and Ellen, who went by Nellie, spent a few years running Philip's farm until he died in 1915. It seems like when people in Andrew's life died, though, it somehow benefited him. Hmm. In 1917, Nellie's Uncle Lawrence died, and Uncle Lawrence had a lot of money. When Nellie's own mother died during her childhood, she was left as the oldest of five children, and her father worked to support the family while Nellie took over the role of, like, parenting her siblings. And the family moved in with Uncle Lawrence in Bath, Michigan, to a three-story house on 80 acres of farmland. That's a lot of land. 
This property was left in the family after Uncle Lawrence died, and Andrew and Nellie worked out a deal with the attorney who was overseeing Lawrence's estate, whose name was Joseph Dunbach, and they purchased the property for $12,000 in 1919. Today, that would have been $260,000. Yep. Andrew and Nellie sold his father's farm in Tecumseh and made the move to Bath, Michigan. So Bath was and still is a very small community. It's a few miles northeast of Lansing. The first town bank had only opened in 1910, and some people were still using horses as a mode of transportation. The town had a blacksmith who worked on things like horseshoes, the blacksmith being the good businessman he is and seeing the technological advancements that were happening with cars. He adapted his business to be part blacksmith and part automotive mechanic. Yes. Um, which I just think is funny. So I... he's like, whatever your mode of transportation is, I'm going to take care of it. Yeah, you me. need horseshoes? I got you. You need a transmission? We'll work that out too. <laughs> <laughs> a few Bath residents remembered Nellie from her childhood there, and they were fairly impressed with how she had done in marriage. Her husband, Andrew, seemed to have a lot of high-tech farm equipment, like a gas-powered tractor. Fancy. And he presented himself more of a businessman than a farmer. He would wear suits and dress shoes to work outside, as opposed to, like, dirty overalls and boots that most farmers would wear. And Andrew... (laughs) I'm sorry. Like, if they had livestock, he's like, come on, pigs. Come on, chickens. Don't get my suit dirty. Come on. Gotta stop that. He very much liked to appear professional yeah i could appreciate that but like there's also a thing called changing your fucking clothes through the day (laughs) andrew was accepted pretty quickly into the community his experience with using dynamite and pyrotol to remove boulders and tree stumps from fields as well as his very serious nature made him the go-to guy when it came to safely setting up explosives whenever that was necessary so pyrotol was a type of explosive that was used pretty frequently after World War I because it was cheap and you could combine it with dynamite to create incendiary blasts, which are explosions designed to cause fire. And it creates more of an ignition than a detonation. So mm-hmm. it ignites instead of detonates. Farmers would use this a lot to like clear areas, to get rid of boulders, to get rid of tree stumps. I love that. That would be a cool profession. You want to blow something up? I've got you. Let's go blow something up. It didn't take long for acquaintances to realize that Andrew had some peculiarities about him. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, The Kehoes didn't have any children, which was pretty odd for the area. Most people were families, but they spent their time instead partaking in activities at the community hall, doing puzzles, playing euchre with people. But Andrew was very strict and very particular about the rules, and he would get very upset when other players didn't abide by what he felt were the official rules of euchre. Oh my god. The Slate family and one of the many Hart families lived next to the Kehoe property and became not necessarily friends, but friendly acquaintances with Andrew and Nellie. Enough to ask for some sugar. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Um, Like, Lulu Hart would often give Nellie rides to Lansing to get groceries with her because the Kehoes didn't have a vehicle of their own. In March 1920, something happened that drove a wedge between the Kehoes and the Harts. Specific details are muddy because it was 1920, but what is known is that one of the Hart's dogs was killed, and it was killed by Andrew, who didn't seem particularly remorseful about it, and he might have even killed the pet on purpose. Oh. 
So the rides to Lansing at this point ended. Yeah. And Lulu was like, oh, nope, sorry. I You, you killed my fucking dog. You can't ride with me. I need to put my purse here. Like, <laughs> you know, like yes. she's trying to passively. I'm actually like, going to take oh, my no. kids. Yeah. <laughs> There's, I unfortunately can't take you to the store. So a year later in the spring of 1921, Andrew suddenly stopped making his mortgage payment. He sent a letter to the estate's attorney saying that he was currently unable to make payments and an extension was granted. So he handled it. I can't make payments. I don't know why, but they gave him an extension. That was nice and gracious of them. A few months later, in the summer of 1921, the community of Bath decided that their current school system needed to be updated. There were several little schoolhouses that dotted the countryside, and the community wanted to create a single building that could house all of the grades and all the students. It was decided that an existing school building would be moved to a new location and then expanded on. In November of 1921, a bond proposal was voted on for the funding of the new school building, and the school board had already raised $8,000 towards the costs, which would have been $125,000 today, but they still needed $35,000, which would be $549,000 today. Damn. That remaining amount would come from a property tax, and it was decided that community members would pay $12.26 per $1,000 of property valuation. Andrew Kehoe's taxes would have been between $140 and $190 from this tax, which today would be $2,500 to $3,000, which is hard. That is hard, but if you're a farmer, you should be making enough, right? Especially if you're, like, not only are you a farmer, you're also working in the dynamite business, right? He was helping. He wasn't, like, running, like, a business. He was just helping people out with that. Okay. And I have no idea as far as, I'm not a farmer. I don't know how much money they make, and I'm sure it was different in 1920, because Mm -hmm. now there's all sorts of tools that you can use to make your crops better and stronger, whereas this was, like, old school put some poop on it and hope it grows. As far <laughs> yeah. as I know. If you're gonna get a tax for something, what better than... A school. A school for the children in the community. Something yes. that's really gonna benefit everybody in the community. Exactly. I don't think I'd be too pressed about it. The school was built in 1922 with 236 students attending the first year. Emery Hewick was chosen to be the superintendent of the New Bath Consolidated School. He had served in the military during the Great War, which was World War I, but obviously at yeah. the time there wasn't a need to number them. He had been a training officer teaching English language skills to recruits, but he had also majored in agricultural studies at Michigan State and had married a fellow student named Ethel, who was a school teacher. So between his education and then his experience, he could work as an administrator and a teacher, and plus he was only in his mid-20s. So they didn't have to pay him the salary they would for an older educator. He was, like, so experienced, but he still wasn't getting paid what he yeah. probably should have done. Like, oh, well, you're really young, so... It's just... <laughs> you're just starting out. This is your first administration job. <laughs> Sorry. So, Hewick was very dedicated to the school and the students, though. He took his position very seriously. He was able to get the school accredited in 1925, which meant that they would be eligible for grants from the state and federal government. That's pretty cool. So he was making sure to do whatever he could to, like, bring in money to the school. In 1923, though, Andrew sent a letter to Dunbach asking if he and Nellie were at risk of being evicted as they still hadn't made any payments on the property since 1921. Dunbach responded that they were in no risk and that he was willing to work out whatever they needed with him. 
1924, Andrew ran for the position of school board treasurer and won beating out a longtime community member and who was a previous school board treasurer whose name was Enos Peacock. I like that name. Enos. Enos? Yeah, it was Enos. Sorry. Which I, I love that name. Andrew would serve for three years with his term set to end in July of 1927. Andrew kept very intense track of the money down to the penny for the school. And he was annoying. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> if the meetings weren't going his way, he would just try to end them right there and, like, adjourn them. He, he was just like, mm, I don't like Somebody what you're saying. Say yeah. Adjourned. And he'd be like, I move to adjourn. <laughs> and they'd be like, no, we still have, like, everything else to talk about. He also immediately took issue with the superintendent, Emery Hewick. He didn't like that Hewick was present at the school board meetings. Even though he's the superintendent? Yeah. How he, dare he? He felt like Hewick was trying to micromanage and control the school board, and he requested that Hewick be banned for meetings, but he was told that the superintendent's presence was required if the schools were going to be allowed to have state funding, which I don't know if that's true or if they were just trying to shut Andrew up. I would use that to shut Andrew up. I imagine that they were just like, it's required... Please stop. This isn't like your time with Euchre. You don't get to call the the shots. The superintendent is allowed to be at school board meetings. Like, you can't be mad about that, sir. But Andrew took... (laughs) It doesn't doesn't make sense. But it made him mad. Um, Andrew took every chance he could to be an ass to Hewick, though. He was able to have Hewick's vacation time cut down to one week a year. And he pushed the board to cut his annual raises in half. Which... That's they huge. You're supposed to get a raise each year, and so they cut those in half. It's like you're actually providing us more funding. Well, um, fuck you. <laughs> Part of Andrew's role was also to hand deliver paychecks to teachers and other school staff, but he would regularly forget to deliver Hewick's paycheck to him, which pisses me off to such a bizarre level because it's so rude. It is. Like, if you signed up to be the, like, what was he again? The secretary? The treasurer. The treasurer, sorry, sorry, the treasurer. Then that is your responsibility to, like, give these people your paychecks. Just because you don't like somebody doesn't mean they didn't earn what they, like, deserve. This dude is literally, he's being underpaid as is. He's just trying to help children, and and now he has to take time out of his day to go track you down to make sure that his own family can be taken care of. Yeah, and this guy isn't even the, oh, he's not even paying his own, like, house payments. He's not probably, like, I don't even know if he's paying the property taxes at this point, right? (laughs) I don't know. <laughs> but he's he, not paying the mortgage the superintendent doesn't deserve his paycheck sorry so in 1925 nelly's dead uncle's estate released legacy payments to his heirs andrew and nelly came to dunebach's office picked up nelly's check for twelve thousand dollars and left without a word about their mortgage which they hadn't paid in four years uh, if you would have been smart you would have at least like paid half of it if so not keep all. in mind that twelve thousand then is like an insane amount now can you imagine getting a random twelve thousand dollar payment now i wish <laughs> i wish so badly oh my gosh and they're just like and the worth of that was way more then but even just twelve thousand now i was like i would cry we don't have to worry about anything for so long and it's such a small amount of money realistically now but um yeah it's 
That, yeah. <laughs> but a month after they picked up this check, Nellie sent a letter to Dunbach requesting to know the appraised worth of the property. And I think that this might have been Andrew asking her to do this because of the property tax he had to pay based on like what the worth of the property was. Yeah. It was based on the valuation of properties. I don't know. Or maybe they were thinking about selling it. Who knows? In the fall of 1925, Andrew approached one of his neighbors asking if he could give Andrew a ride to Jackson, Michigan, which is 47 miles away. So it's a trip. Yeah. The neighbor agreed, but was a little surprised when what Andrew wanted to get in Jackson turned out to be 500 pounds of pyrotol. Andrew told his neighbor that if he knew anyone who needed to buy some, that he could send them Andrew's way. So I guess he was, like, on the down low selling people stuff, supposedly. But later that day, the neighbor did run into somebody who wanted to buy Pyrotol. But when the man approached Andrew, Andrew told him that he was all plumb out of Pyrotol, even though he had just bought 500 pounds of it that day. 500 pounds is a freaking lot. So in 1926, uh, it was a bit of a weird year for Andrew. He bought himself a truck. Uncle Lawrence's estate released another $500, but when Dunbach saw this, he just took it and he applied it to the mortgage, which was now five years behind on payments. Yeah, I would. And he forwarded Nellie a note, letting her know that he'd applied the money as a payment. Okay. And Nellie thanked him and then asked to know how much they still owed on the mortgage. A lot. (laughs) Andrew was livid. He insisted that they sue and they ended up in court, and the judge agreed that Dunbach had acted out of line, but suggested that they leave the payment as is because it benefited the Kehoes to have a payment made on their mortgage. And Nellie was okay with this decision, but Andrew wasn't. And realistically, it's Nellie's money. Yeah. It's Nellie's family's property. Yep, it was her inheritance. So Nellie gave in to Andrew. He demanded that they receive a check then and there for Nellie's $500. They were given a check for the amount owed and once again left without a word about the mortgage payments. Can you imagine being like exhausted as Nellie just hearing her stupid husband be controlling over money that's not even his? And she's not in a position at that point in time to be like, sir. Yes. Like, we're not doing this. Come on now. At the school, Andrew took care of a nasty bee infestation that year, and afterwards he was given keys to the building and asked to help oversee maintenance when necessary. Meanwhile, Hewitt's salary was raised against Andrew's wishes, and the school board approved updates to classroom resources, as as well as playground equipment for the school, which is awesome. Where others saw advancement for the school and benefits for the students, Andrew saw costs to taxpayers, mainly himself. He's just so selfish. He is. Over the summer, Nellie started to get really sick. She had constant horrible migraines and an overwhelming cough. She spent months going in and out of the hospital at Lansing while doctors tried to figure out what was going on. At first, they were told that Nellie had tuberculosis. But then it was decided that she was suffering from asthma, which seems like a huge switch from like, I think you have tuberculosis to, it's just asthma. Yeah. She was losing weight and growing weak and frail, even though she was only 51 years old. The couple had to hire a woman to help out around the house because she just wasn't able to do anything. Wow, 51. Because of that asthma. The asthma. They don't even have inhalers back then. (laughs) Andrew didn't even bother to harvest his crops. He just let them rot in the field. I hate him. (laughs) So for this, 
I think that this was a solid sign that he was mentally deteriorating. Yeah. I, yeah, I can... You know. I also hate him. Yes, for sure. Like, like, for sh- like his, it's fair to hate him. Yeah, it, he must have... I'm sure he cared a lot about Nelly, regardless of, you know... I don't know. I hope I that he cared so. a lot about Nelly. We'll get it. We'll get into that. <laughs> In November, Dunebach filed a motion for foreclosure on the property just to kind of, like, scare them. Because he was just like, you guys are not paying your mortgage. I'm going to file for foreclosure. That was fair. But then he ran into Nellie's family, and they were telling him about Nellie's bad health, and he felt guilty and bad, so he tried to stop the notice of foreclosure from being delivered to the Kehoes, but he was too late. The sheriff who delivered the notice later said that Andrew looked over the papers and then commented, if it hadn't been for that $300 school tax, I might have paid the mortgage. Whatever, Andrew. Which bullshit andrew no you fucking wouldn't have no he wouldn't like you were literally given twelve thousand dollars the year before and didn't pay shit on it and after receiving the notice andrew made a few more trips to lansing for dynamite and a rifle like dude stop stop buying buying stop buying dynamite and just make a payment on your property make a payment nah that would be too easy so on December 31st, as 1926 turned into 1927, explosions could be heard. Explosions. Did explosions. You hear that? <laughs> explosions. Explosions could be heard coming from the Kehoe property. His neighbors joked with him about him blasting his way into the new year, and Kehoe told them that he had used a timing device for the blast to go off right at midnight. This event was most likely him testing out timers. Mm hmm interesting and seeing how timing devices worked with explosives why do you need a timing device so the new year didn't bring any new good to andrew in his life a professor at michigan state college did put in an offer to buy the keyhole property which wasn't actually for sale he's just like i see they're not making any payments i want to yeah but the offer was pulled out when the professor found out how much the property taxes were which to me tells me that when they purchased this big house and land in Bath, the Keos probably didn't realize exactly what they were getting themselves into. Because a lot of people do that when they buy a home. They mm-hmm. don't factor in like property, property taxes tax. and any of the extra costs that go into it. They just look at the payment for the mortgage. Mortgage, yep. Yeah. So Nellie's health continued to decline. And she was still in and out of the hospital, but neighbors saw Andrew coming and going a lot, figuring he was visiting Nellie often in Lansing. And I think he was, but he would also return with his truck bed full of boxes. In the spring, Andrew was nominated and ran for the position of County Justice of Peace, (laughs) which he lost. Obviously. They're like, we seem to notice that you are an asshole. Yeah. As his term for the uh, school board treasurer was coming to an end, his nemesis, Emery Hewick, was also putting in his own notice that he would be ending his position as superintendent superintendent, and moving on to new opportunities. So he's not getting reelected for anything. His position as school board treasurer is ending, and the person who he hates is progressing with life. Yeah. On Monday, May 16th, 1927, Andrew picked up Nellie from the hospital and they visited with friends in Lansing before returning to Bath. After arriving home, they received a call from Blanche Hart. She was the fifth grade teacher at the school and she was calling to check in and see how Nellie was feeling now that she was home. Because that's, that's nice just of her. Old school stuff. Small community, yeah. 
On Tuesday, May 17th, the first grade teacher, Bernice Sterling, called Andrew Kehoe and asked if she could have a picnic with her students that week in a grove of trees on the edge of his property. He asked what day she was planning on having the picnic, and she said Thursday. He told her, if you're going to have a picnic, you'd better have it right away, which was a little odd, but at this point, everybody knew Andrew was a little odd, so they were like, okay, whatever. On May 18th, 1927, Wednesday morning, there had been a thunderstorm that had knocked out the power to the school and the well pump was acting up. The school's janitor, Frank Smith, was in the basement waiting for the repairman that he had called to arrive. Albert Detluff, the blacksmith slash auto mechanic, (laughs) ran into Andrew Kehoe near the railway depot that morning. Andrew had just dropped off a package to be sent to an insurance agent in Lansing that day. Detlef was also on the school board and asked Andrew when the next meeting would be. Andrew told him the next meeting was that Friday, the 20th. Detlef then asked Andrew if he wouldn't mind heading over to the school with him and taking a look at the electrical and water pump issues because... He knows some things. Yeah, Kehoe was the helper for maintenance. Yeah. Uh, The two men headed over and they met with Frank Smith and the three stood in the basement discussing the problem when Andrew checked his watch and said that it was 825 and he needed to leave. Detlef reminded Andrew that it was actually 7.25 because Andrew kept his watch on Eastern time, which is... So weird. The, no, Eastern time is the... Cause yeah. Eastern time is the time frame. For, yes, that word. Time zone. Yes. That's the word. But the school functioned on Central time, which is the weird thing. That is weird. Yeah. Undeterred, Andrew still said that he was in a hurry and he took off. Odd. So meanwhile in town, eight-year-old Arnold Borrell, I want to say... Borel, I'm going to go with, wanted to tag along with his family to Lansing that day as they were going shopping. But Arnold had just recovered from whooping cough and had already missed too much school, so his parents sent him on his way. 12-year-old Iola Hart kissed her mother goodbye and picked a bouquet of lilacs on her way to school that morning. And children started slowly arriving. This was the last week. Exams were happening and graduation was scheduled to take place the next day. Kids were excited to be so close to having the summer off, and there were roughly 250 children attending school that day, with almost every family in Bath having at least one child from their family at school. Classes began that morning, and Carlton Hollister's fifth grade class moved from the first floor to the second floor to trade places with a sixth grade class. The sixth graders had an exam that morning, and the first floor room worked better for test taking. Just better lighting. Just the vibe. (laughs) It had better, like, feng shui. Um, they're going to get better grades if they're I don't know why, because it's not like there was technology to be used down there. Yeah. But, uh, but they switched. Um, and the fifth grade class went upstairs, and the second, or the sixth grade class went downstairs. When Carlton got to the new room, he, like, looked in the desk to see whose desk he was sitting at. And the name inside was his friend's Galen Hart. So he was like, oh, I'm at Galen's seat. <laughs> I always thought that was funny when you, like, would do that in school. Did you ever do that in school? Yeah. Same. Or, like, if you got a book, like, you have to look in the front to see who had the book A book before, before you? Yes. Yep, absolutely. So Leona Gutenkust was the second grade teacher, and she had her students sitting on the east side of the classroom in a circle as she read them a story. When the story ended, she told the kids to return to their desks on the other side of the room but they begged to hear another story, and she relented and started another one. At 8.45 a.m., a wire connected to a small alarm clock underneath the north wing of the school set off a spark, and this spark set off a chain reaction along multiple wires that spiderwebbed underneath the school. At the end of each wire was a blasting cap, and an explosion of ridiculous magnitude went off, sending the walls of the north wing upwards and then back down. 
the roof of the building came crashing down onto the second floor. There were a few seconds of silence, shattered by screams and chaos. The west wall of Leona Gutenkus classroom had exploded, throwing debris all over the empty desks. First graders in Bernice Sterling's room were thrown around the room from the force of the explosion. Portions of the second floor collapsed down onto the first floor, and the town reacted so fast. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure they could hear that explosion. Yeah, everyone within earshot of the blast came running towards the school, and within a matter of minutes, the school went from standing to having half of it in ruins with the screams of survivor trapped in rubble, mixing with the screams of adults and parents looking for children. Albert Detloff had just gotten to his shop when he heard the explosion and he ran outside. People were yelling that the schoolhouse had blown up and he took off running towards the school thinking of his daughter who was a student there. And he had just been there in yeah. the basement. Immediately, everyone who arrived began digging through rubble with their bare hands, which quickly became bloodied because they didn't have gloves. They were just grabbing bricks and stuff and looking for survivors. Hewick was already at the school that day. Lee immediately began pulling kids from the rubble. He was yelling directions to people, trying to organize the efforts a little bit. He sent some people for ladders. He ordered people to bring their trucks and vehicles to move heavy debris to reach people. At 8.45 a.m., Lulu Hart was outside when she heard a loud sound. She looked over and saw that across the street the Kehoe barn was burning. She ran and got her husband, and when they returned to the scene, they could see that the home was pouring out thick black smoke as well, and they could hear a series of blasts coming from the property. They didn't go near because they immediately assumed that Kehoe had purposefully done this himself. Yeah. There were linemen working nearby, and they saw the smoke coming from the Kehoe place. They headed over to help, and some of the linemen crawled through a broken window of the home to look for anybody inside who needed help, which is amazing yeah because it takes a lot of guts to go into a burning building when they didn't see or hear anyone they decided to start trying to save what furniture they could (laughs) so considerate (laughs) which is insane to think that they like crawled into a burning house of a stranger to try to save them and when they didn't find anybody they're like we might as well save their sofa take the antique chair Oh my goodness. So they made a line, and as one of the men was handing items to the person behind them, the chain to the window, he had grabbed a bundle, handed it to his shocked and terrified co-worker, and it was at that point that his brain registered that what he had picked up was dynamite. Oh, that's fucked. So the crew got yeah. their furniture rescuing efforts, and they got out of there real fast. Yep. Some other neighbors pulled up to the Kehoe house and they saw a figure in the smoke near the house with a vehicle. The vehicle drove up to them and it was Andrew. And he was very calm seeing as how his entire property was burning to the ground. And he looked at them and said, you're my friends, you better get out of here, you better go down to the school. And then he pulled away onto the road and headed toward town. The scene at and around the school was horrific. By this point, there were parents everywhere screaming their children's names. Hewick pulled the first injured alive child out of the rubble, and it was Carlton Hollister, the little boy who'd been looking in the desk. He was unconscious, and Hewick carried him to a safe space to be tended to. Homes next to the school were being turned into temporary hospitals. Bedsheets were being stripped into pieces and used as bandages for the wounded, and a small morgue was taking shape in the grass nearby. The body of a seven-year-old girl who died in the blast was hanging by her heel, 
within full sight of the rescuers until they were able to clear enough debris to safely retrieve her and move her to the morgue. Just to, like, thoroughly explain how... Horrific. Horrible this was. Yeah. Um, severely injured teachers were having students jump out of windows of the second floor that was still standing into their arms. And Albert Detla found his daughter, who had only just injured her ankle in the blast, and once he carried her to safety, he went back to look for more survivors. I love how the communities, like, come together in such this tragedy and it's just doing everything that they can. So, Martin Milliman, who was 72 years old, Martin, he was one of the first people on the scene digging through the rubble after the blast. He pulled out four children from the rubble and was determined to find as many as he could. Bless his fucking heart. Yeah, being that old and still using, like, all your energy to to find to these kids. Oh, my God. I'm just like, oh, this story gets me so hard. Some parents who couldn't find their children on the scene gathered up enough heart or courage or whatever it is you need in order to look under the bed sheets to see if their child was one of the dead. And it was very clear based on reactions when a parent found their child in this makeshift morgue. Yep. The sixth grade teacher, Eva Gubbins, woke up to find herself buried in rubble. A beam was crushing her legs and her spine was being pressed into a radiator. She was bleeding badly and she couldn't move her head. She realized that one of her students was laying across her legs in between her and the beam and that his face was just a few inches from hers and he was dead. Mm. And she couldn't move. She couldn't. She just had to close her eyes and wait to be rescued. Oh my gosh. Hazel Weatherby was the third, fourth grade teacher and she was uncovered, barely clinging to life and in each of her arms she was holding one of her students. Neither of the students that she was holding had survived, and when rescuers removed their bodies from her arms, she just exhaled and died. She was just waiting for them to get safe. She was just hanging on until her students were in the arms of rescuers, even though they were gone already. (sighs) Wow. A kindergartner boy who had survived the explosion... um, during all the chaos and confusion, took off running as fast as he could towards home. Which is like, my kids are that age. Yep. Holy fuck. Um, he's just a little baby. And when he got home, he ran into his mother's arms because she was outside still trying to take in what she was seeing happening as this plumage of smoke and dust in the distance. Yep. And after the little boy calmed down, his mother asked him why he was carrying that chair. And he didn't realize that he was even holding it, but just in his panic, he just grabbed his chair that he was sitting in and ran all the way home holding it. That's a lot of shock. Because he just didn't, he just didn't think about it. Yeah. Um, He just wanted to see his mom. He wanted his mom. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. This starts rough. Emery Hewick left rescuers to keep looking for a moment while he ran to the telephone exchange on Main Street. He knew that the town needed help responding to this. And he ordered the teenage girl working to place calls to pretty much everyone. The Lansing Fire Department was called and the chief sent over workers as well as a truck with telephone and telegram equipment so that more calls and messages could be sent out. The Lansing Department arrived within 12 minutes of receiving the call, which is crazy because it's not like the vehicles were speeding down a highway in 1927 Mm -mm. at 80 miles per hour. And I think it was good if they could even go 50 miles per hour. 
and I tried to find out how fast fire trucks could go in 1927, but I couldn't, I couldn't figure that out, and that quickly turned into me being like, I don't know what the difference between horsepower is and speed and equations, and they just weren't super fast, and that's all yeah. I need to know. Yep, they were just hauling ass as much <laughs> as they could. Don't know how much ass they were hauling, <laughs> but they were doing their best. <laughs> A few people at this point saw Andrew Kehoe driving past them headed to town. He casually smiled and waved at each person. I hate him. <laughs> Frank Smith, the janitor, lived across the street from the school, and his home quickly became one of the temporary hospitals with his wife, who is also amazing, setting up as many beds and cots as she could. Hewick stopped in there on his way back from the telephone exchange and asked Leona Smith if she would be able to take in more injured. She said yes and immediately went to go set up another bedroom in the house to bring in more people. Hewick headed back across the street, and he was doing an amazing job at trying to bring some organization to the disaster. His wife, Ethel, arrived with the couple's car and quickly handed it over to people to work hauling the debris away. Yeah. So what happens next is kind of a rough estimate based on witnesses. Andrew Kehoe pulled up in a truck as Hewick was headed back across the street to the school from the Smith house. Andrew called Hewick over to his truck, and Hewick headed over to update him on the situation and tell him that they would need his truck for the rescue effort. Andrew made some sort of comment back, and supposedly Hewick at that point realized and accused Andrew of knowing something about or being involved in the explosion. Andrew responded to this accusation by pulling out his rifle and firing it into his own truck bed, which he had wired with a bunch of explosives. He had also packed his truck with as much scrap metal, screws, nuts, bolts, anything that would act as shrapnel during the explosion. And in a split second, Kehoe, his truck, and Hewick were gone, with just some scrap metal and a smoldering hole left behind. What a sick bastard. Metal flew everywhere. Shrapnel hit already injured children, previously uninjured children, and adults. Nelson McFerrin had been helping with the efforts, but he was killed instantly by the car blast. His son-in-law, Glenn Smith, was injured, and Glenn Smith was Frank's brother. Glenn died within a few hours, and he kept telling the people taking care of him that it was time for him to go and that he didn't want anyone to feel bad if he didn't make it. Eight-year-old Cleo Clayton had been able to walk away from the school blast unharmed, but was hit with shrapnel from the car explosion, and he died from those wounds later that day. At this point, the situation had reached peak horror. Yep. There were dead and injured children everywhere, parents experiencing horrible loss, body parts were raining down from the car explosion, and blood was misting in the air like rain. Oh my god. People started to vomit, which added just an extra stench to the area. Um, but ambulances had started arriving, and they were bringing wounded to the hospital in Lansing, followed by droves of parents and family members. Workers digging for survivors came across a young boy who appeared to be dead and not breathing, and when they, when they went to move him, the boy took a big breath in, opened his eyes, jumped up, and ran off at full speed yelling for his parents. Oh my god. So they thought they were, like, gonna move him to the morgue, and the kid was like, I want my parents. Yup, but I want my fucking mom. Which had to have been, like, that had to have been a terrifying moment for the workers of like, oh shit, he's moving. Yeah. But also like this almost like weird giddy sense of like, oh my god, thank god. <laughs> Not he's another okay. one. Go be free. <laughs> Over in the grass that was being used as a morgue, a mother was searching for her son, and she carefully lifted up some of the bed sheets. 
Under one was a body of a young girl, but the mother noticed that when the sun hit the dead little girl's face, her eyelids fluttered. Yes. She yelled out that the little girl was alive, and she was, and the girl ended up living. At that same moment, more yelling was coming from the other side of the little morgue, because another woman had noticed that one of the little boys was wiggling his toes, and he also Mm. ended up surviving. Across the street on the edge of the Smith property, workers were getting more bandages made when one of the men noticed some parts in a ditch. Hmm. Um, There were formal papers and ID-type documents, and a head um, with most of its face intact and gray hair still attached, and the name on the papers was Andrew P. Kehoe. There had already been whispers going around the scene that Andrew had caused the destruction, but the sheriff wanted to get a positive ID on the head, so he... Like, grabbed it and raised it up or something? No, he, um, showed a teenage boy who kind of knew Andrew Kehoe and asked the boy if this forcefully decapitated head belonged to Andrew. Interesting. And the boy wasn't sure. Yep. Just got to experience that extra trauma to everything else going on around him. Uh, But Kehoe's neighbor ended up being the one to tell the sheriff that that was Andrew. Yeah. The Michigan State Police found out about the package that Andrew had sent that morning to the insurance agent, and they were like, we need to find that package. Yeah. At the same time, other officers entered a part of the basement that was still intact and discovered more dynamite attached to a series of wires. So because of that, rescue efforts were stopped at 10.45 a.m. because they were worried about the undetonated dynamite. Yeah. Police didn't know if it was still ticking away, set to go off at a later time to cause more damage once first responders come. The officers went through the basement trying to clear out the explosives and make sure that anything set to detonate wouldn't. They found the wires connected to an alarm clock and another set of wires attached to another intact alarm clock, but something had just malfunctioned and the other two devices hadn't gone off. Only the explosives under the north wing had worked. Blasting caps and explosives were carefully removed from the basement, but there were some tight spaces that grown men couldn't reach, but they could see that the dynamite was packed into these crevices. So 14-year-old Chester Sweet volunteered himself to crawl into these tiny spaces and get the leftover explosives. Ah, wow. His brother Dean and sister Ava had been injured in the blast, and it was actually his brother Dean who had been in the morgue wiggling his toes. So this 14-year-old, like, thought his brother was dead, his sister's injured, he's he's a child, and he's like, I'll crawl into these little spaces to get the, the dynamite. That's a lot. 504 pounds of undetonated dynamite and pyrotol was pulled out from under the rest of the building. Only 100 pounds of explosives had gone off under the north wing. Oh my god. Which I say only in comparison to the 500, obviously 100 pounds of explosives is a lot. It's still, yeah, it's still a lot, but like, Andrew's intent. Clearly he meant to do... The whole freaking school. And then plus the strap metal with the truck. Like, he just wanted to kill the whole entire town, it it sounded like. Yeah. (sighs) Maddie Smith was a school official who had given herself the responsibility of tracking down each child, which there's so many, like, as horrible as Andrew was, there's so many people in this story who are like, good for you, thank you. Yep, doing what they can. Like, that is such a good idea of I'm gonna find whether they are dead alive, injured, I'm gonna figure out where each of these kids are. Yeah. She had a school census in hand. She was going around marking off each name of the children. Word was spreading all over Michigan and quickly even across the U.S. News companies were sending planes with photographers to Bath by lunchtime to try to get photographs and be the first paper to publish a story. Nellie's sisters, though, were quickly realizing that no one knew where Nellie was. 
Oh. Andrew had told them the day before that Nellie was staying with friends in Lansing, but she hadn't been there and the friends had no idea where Nellie was either. No one had seen Nellie since Andrew brought her home from the hospital Monday night. Firefighters put out the fire at the Kehoe house and farm with no sign of there having been anyone in the house, and the chicken coop was the only building left standing, and in what would have been the barn, and this involves animal cruelty, which, I mean, if you've made it this far and you've listened to, like, all the stuff about children, like... Fair. So, in the, where the barn had been, there were the remains of two horses with wire wrapped around their feet so that they were unable to escape the fire. I think that Andrew was a crap human, but he also had been recently trying to sell the horses for a profit, and I think that this was also his way of being like, I'm gonna make sure that nobody gets my horses after I'm gone for free. He's just... Like, so I think that he just saw the horses and, as like, property. Greedy. I don't think he saw them as, like, living beings and what he was doing is cruel. It was, I'm not gonna let anybody have my stuff, which yeah. is also probably why he got rid of his house. He's like, nobody's gonna have my stuff. I can't have it. You can't either. Nah. At the edge of the property, Andrew had left a homemade wooden sign that read, Criminals are made, not born. Fuck off. The package that Andrew had sent that morning was tracked down in the late afternoon, and it hadn't made it to its destination, thanks in part to a mistake made in reading the label of the address. The package was left in a police yard overnight while they organized an effort to open it with the assumption that it was rigged to explode. When they were able to get it open the next day, it contained ledger books and a note that read, Dear Sir, I am leaving the school board and turning over to you all of my accounts. They are all in this box. Due to an uncashed check, the bank had 22 cents more than my books showed when I took them over. Due to an error on the part of the secretary in order number 118, dated November 18, 1925, the bank gained one cent more over my books, making the bank account show 23 cents more than my books. Otherwise, I am sure you will find my books exactly right. Sincerely, Andrew Kehoe. The 23 cents that he felt it was so important to explain today would have just been $3.72. Oh my god. And I involve, like, I include that to show again that he's a fucking prick. Yeah. You know that they're going to be reading this after you murdered a bunch of children. And you're just like, I kept meticulous track of every single cent that came in and out, but I refused to pay my mortgage and I got mad about that, so I killed a bunch of children. Wow. The reality of the situation began to set in the next day. Cleanup was still happening, but everyone was accounted for, whether dead, injured, or safe. Bath was facing financial expenses that they weren't prepared to deal with. Um, the costs of the funeral and building a new school were heavy. The school board only had $253 in its funds on the day of the bombing. The bombing of the school temporarily dominated the news the day of and the day after the incident, but on May 20th, however, Charles Lindbergh took off from New York on his famous flight across the Atlantic, and after that, the news about Bath faded from the papers. Wow. Because there were new stories, which is how it works now, too. Yeah. Um, but donations still poured in from all over the state country and even from Canada. And the Michigan Ionia prison had a group of prisoners who pooled their money and donated $200. That's really sweet. Which today would be $3,200. Wow. And the Ingham County Tuberculosis Sanitarium donated $17.80 the children at the sanitarium had raised, which would have been $287, which is so sweet that, like, a bunch of really sick kids were like, we you can raised, have some of your money. We raised $287. Oh, 
The donations slowed down, however, when Michigan Senator James J. Cousins announced that he would be donating a good sum of money to Bath. Senator Cousins was really, really wealthy, and he donated large sums to causes, especially those involving children. He had experienced the untimely and unexpected deaths of two of his own children, and it seemed like he just really wanted to help out wherever possible. He personally paid for the school to be rebuilt, and it was decided that it would be built on the same site. Okay. He wow. gave $80,000 to pay for the school to be rebuilt, which today wow. would be $1.3 million. Um, the graduation ceremony that was supposed to had been supposed to be taking place the next day. Um, that obviously didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Diplomas were just sent out to students instead. Makes sense. They they got a lot of other stuff to worry about. So the next day, two state officers were patrolling the Kehoe farm in the morning when they stopped for a cigarette break. And as they smoked, they were chatting and looking around them. There was a makeshift cart nearby that dozens of workers and officers had already walked by over and over again. But as the officers today were looking at it, they realized that there was a very badly burned body laying just kind of under the cart with one of the arms stretched up over the wheel axle. Okay. They had found Nellie Kehoe. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Nellie was laid there with little mementos placed on and around her. Rings, fancy silverware, a little box containing documents like the couple's marriage license. Her skull was broken and it was assumed by many that Andrew had killed her by bludgeoning her and then placed her outside. But there is a chance that her skull could have broken from the heat of the fire, um, because that's common for skulls of individuals like burned in fires to have fractures from just like pressure the heat and stress. Pressure. The county prosecutor William Cyril held an inquest in the days following the bombing to try to get a clear picture of what had happened. But he chose six men from the community who didn't have children, so they wouldn't be emotionally biased. And these men were tasked with hearing interviews and testimonies of members from the community covering the details of the events leading up to, during, and right after the explosion. Over two days, they spoke with 55 people of all ages. And this is where it's weird. The men deliberated for a minute and then came back with the conclusion that Andrew Kehoe was solely responsible for the destruction. Um, And it was just kind of pointless. They did like a weird little like we're going to deliberate and determine if this dead man is guilty of this or innocent when we all watched him blow yeah. up his car full of shrapnel. But I think some people in the community just needed to feel like... There was some trial. Yeah, there was, like, something accomplished. Yeah. Like, I, I can understand that. Because the town didn't already have enough chaos, tourists started to pour into Bath to get a sight of the bomb schoolhouse and the killer's scorched property. On the Sunday after the bombing... 85,000 vehicles passed through Bath. There should have been, like, a toll. Yeah. <laughs> Pay, at least. Yep. If you're gonna be a, a jerk and be, like, looking at this stuff, get at least... $10. Like, <laughs> I was gonna say, like, at least a dollar. <laughs> no, it's $10. <laughs> this is a huge tragedy. Um, car accidents were happening just left and right, and one child was actually, like, really badly injured in a crash caused by all the tourist traffic. I don't... It wasn't a child from Bath, I don't think. It was, like, one of the people. Okay. Which is still sad, because, like, yeah. the kid got hurt. The kid survived. The Michigan State Police, after that, started stationing themselves on the outskirts of town and redirected tourists back to wherever they came from. Good. The funerals for all the children created a bit of a debacle. Trying to schedule so many funerals was complicated, there were 38 children who had died and six adults, oh not including God. Andrew, because I don't include him in any of this. No, he sucks. The town reverend, who would normally oversee the funeral ceremonies, wasn't able to perform his duties because his own eight-year-old daughter had died in the bombing, and he and his family were trying to bury her and deal with their own grief. 
Seven-year-old Ralph Cushman had always wanted to pick the red tulips that grew outside the front door of his home, and his mom would tell him no. He died in the bombing, and she had him buried with the red tulips. That's very sweet. Nellie was buried on her family's plot in Lansing with a headstone that bears her maiden name, Ellen A. Price, which I love that they did that because whether he bludgeoned her or just burned her to death, Andrew murdered his wife. Yeah, he doesn't deserve to. And she shouldn't have to spend the rest of eternity buried under her murderer's name. Yep, exactly. Exactly. Andrew Kehoe is buried in the same cemetery as Nellie in the indigent section of the property, which means like poor, homeless... You're not worth anything. Yeah, and he's in an unmarked grave. Good. Apparently, multiple holes were dug, and then the undertaker just chose one of the holes. They, like, threw him in, and then they buried up all the holes. I love that. And later, one of the people in charge of the cemetery was asked if he could point out which spot Andrew was buried in. He's like, I don't know. (laughs) He's like, I don't really care either. Yeah. Beatrice Gibb was a fifth grader who had been gravely injured during the bombing. She had surprisingly pulled through... But she was going to need surgery. Months after the bombing, she did the surgery, but there were complications, and she died the day after her surgery in August. And she was the last death from the bombing. It took Ava Sweet a week of repeatedly washing her hair to get all the plaster dust out of it and back to its natural brown color from the white color it had become. Oh my god. Her parents were told that they shouldn't expect her brother Dean to live past his 15th birthday. But Dean was still giving interviews about his experience in 2001 when he was almost 90 years old. Yay! Dean was the little boy, the boy with his wiggle in his toes. toes. So Good Dean for is, Dean. Yeah, Dean made it. He did. Five more children were left on death watch in the hospital throughout the summer, but they were all released by the end of the summer, having fully recovered. That's so good. Physically. <laughs> yeah. During the summer, as crews continued to clean the wreckage and thoroughly go through the property, they discovered 244 more sticks of undetonated dynamite below the school. Over the next year, while the new school was being built, the town adapted back rooms of stores and other locations to serve as temporary classrooms. The town was starting the slow process of healing, but obviously an event like that doesn't just go away or fade into the past smoothly. Roscoe Witchell lost his 10-year-old daughter Elizabeth in the bombing, And years later, as an old man, he suffered a stroke, and as he recovered, nurses and therapists worked with him to reteach him how to write things like his own name, but whenever they gave him a paper and a writing utensil, he would just write Elizabeth. Oh. In 1953, a new elementary school was built across the street from the consolidated school, and in 1961, another building was added. A new high school was built, and the old consolidated school closed in 1975. On May 18, 1975, 48 years to the day after the bombing, the consolidated school was safely demolished. A portion of the land where the school once stood became the James J. Cousins Memorial Park and the, I don't know how to say it, the copula? Copula? It's like the top part of the school. Uh Um, From the original school was placed in the middle with a plaque listing the names of the victims. Good. The Kehoe property remained empty for at least a decade, with a few brick remains of the house becoming a morbid playground for some of the children in the area, but now it's just farmland across the street from the Welcome to Bath sign. Okay. The Bath High School class of 1977 invited surviving members of the class of 1927 to join them for their graduation ceremony 50 years after their own was supposed to take place. That is so sweet. The survivors were able to finally, like, receive their diplomas and in walk. person. walk, yeah. 
There's been a debate over the years on why Andrew did what he did. A few of the people who knew him insisted that he never would have hurt the children on purpose, and he probably meant for the blast to go off the night before when there was a meeting of adults in the building happening. I don't know about that. That's not true. Yeah. Because if that's true, he wouldn't have been checking his watch that morning been to like, make I sure go. that it was being set off at a certain time, and he wouldn't have driven his car full of shrapnel up into a scene of a bunch of children and detonated that. Yep. He absolutely meant to injure the children, sir. His friends just were trying to make themselves feel better, I think. (laughs) Yeah. This guy is evil. The few people who did express that he, like, they were like, oh, I don't think that he would have done this on purpose. They were pretty much run out of town by the rest of the community. Good. I personally think that Andrew cared a lot about how he appeared to people. Like, he wanted to be in control. I think that he was narcissistic. I think that he obviously had other psychopathic tendencies, but I think that he became very overwhelmed by the cost of the new home. And I don't think that he wanted, he didn't want to lose what he had. He didn't want to look like a failure. He wanted to be perfect. It's, that's, uh, it just makes me so angry because like, I see this as like, this dude's just so freaking self-centered, selfish, and prideful. Yeah, like, I think that he just wanted it constantly reaffirmed how great he was, and he wasn't being re-elected to treasurer, his wife was struggling physically. I think that his own life was falling apart, I think that he wanted to blame any outward thing that he could, and I think he blamed the town, and I think he saw the school as a symbol of a huge part of that, of, like, what took his money from him, and I think that he planned to hurt Hewick and the town in the deepest way he could. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that he very, I think he was going to take away the most important thing to them, which was their children. It was his intention to kill all of the children there. Yep. I think so too. And he, he planned it for a long time. Yeah. Cause he was stockpiling all of that dynamite. He had thousands it's of pounds. It's not like he just went in the night before and like threw it under there. He, over the course of months to maybe even years, was placing it in the building. Like, and he, he was digging some underneath the freaking ground of the basement too, right? I think yeah. So. Yep. He was a piece of shit. So the level of just horrible in this person is horrifying. And it's interesting because it doesn't get talked about a lot. Like this isn't a case that is well-known. Granted, it happened a long time ago, but school shootings are so common now. And this was, I believe, the first school attack that happened in the United States. And it, to date, is the most deadly school. Yeah. It's just insane. And it happened in Michigan. I like that Bath still has a memorial for it. They do, and it's lovely. I remember you showing me a photo of it. It was very nice. Um, I one year went on the anniversary of the bombing, and... I was in the cemetery looking at some of the headstones of the kids and somebody had left little toy cars on the headstones of the kids who had died in the bombing. Oh, my heart. That's so sweet. 59 were injured that day and 44 people died. I want to end this by reading the names of the dead and I'm going to read their ages as well. Some of the names are hard and obviously it's hard to like go back and figure out all of the pronunciations but I'm going to do my best. So the people who lost their lives in this bombing were Arnold Borrell, eight years old, Henry Bergen, 14 years old, Herman Bergen, 11 years old, Robert Bromond, 12 years old, Emily Bromond, 11 years old, Floyd Burnett, 11 years old, 
Russell Chapman, eight years old, Cleo Clayton, eight years old, Robert Cochran, eight years old, Ralph Cushman, seven years old, Earl Ewing, 11 years old, Catherine Foote, 10 years old, Marjorie Fritz, 11 years old, Carlisle Geisenhaver, nine years old, Beatrice Gibbs, 10 years old, George Hall Jr., 10 years old, Willa Hall, 12 years old, Iola Hart, 12 years old, Percy Hart, 11 years old, Vivian Hart, nine years old, Galen Hart, 12 years old, Lavere Hart, nine years old, Stanley Hart, 12 years old, Francis Hoppner, 13 years old, Cecil Hunter, 13 years old, Doris Johns, seven years old, Clarence McFerrin, 13 years old, Thelma McDonald, seven years old, J. Emerson Medkoff, nine years old, Emma Nichols, 13 years old, Richard Richardson, 12 years old, Elsie Robb, 12 years old, Pauline Schertz, nine years old. She died the day before her birthday. Aww. Her birthday was May 19th. Elizabeth Witchell, 10 years old, Lucille Witchell, nine years old, Harold Woodman, eight years old, George Zimmerman, 10 years old, Lloyd Zimmer, 12 years old, Hazel Weatherby, who was a teacher, Glenn Smith, Emery Hewick, Blanche Hart, Nelson McFerrin, and Nellie Price were the adults who lost their lives. 